Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast and in honour of our American listeners we'll have a Thanksgiving themed episode this week and Neil Morrison is so thankful that this incredibly condensed and crazy MotoGP season is finished that uh, well he's actually just gone straight back to Barcelona to see his girlfriend he's not going to talk to myself Steve English David Emmett David you must be incredibly thankful that it's going to be quite a few months until you're back on another Zoom call. Yes, I am sitting here in my little Zoom room um, where I have spent uh, countless hours since, what is it, July or whatever. So, yeah, it's um, it's quite pleasing that it's sort of finally over. I mean, you know, in a, in a month's time, uh, I'm going to be thinking about 2021. But right now, all I'm thinking about is not motorbikes. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty glad that, uh, well, I'm sitting here, not in my Zoom room, but uh, I'm sitting here and I'm glad just to be in Ireland again for the first time <laughs> in what seems like about six months. But David, it's been a crazy year in MotoGP. We've had nine different winners. We've had 15 riders on the podium, four manufacturers, won races, and we had three very popular world champions. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, it, it really has been a surpri- a year of surprises, like nobody could have predicted um what would have gone i mean if you'd have bet on juan beer being world champion uh you would have made an absolute fortune i think if you'd have had a a multiplier with uh uh what is it um uh mir and bastianini and arenas uh then you you might not have got so much for arenas but if you had a multiplier with mir and uh, and bastianini as your motor two and motor three champs i mean you would basically be able to buy your own motor gp team Oh, don't tell me that, David. I bet on pretty much everyone else through the course of this season. <laughs> so uh, it's been a bit of a disaster, really. But I think when you look at this year, David, obviously 2020 is going to be a year that we're always going to remember, both on track and off track. But I think given everything that we've had all the way through this year, it was nice to have the respite of an incredible MotoGP season. And um, When you look back on this year, what's the big highlight for you? Um, uh, the, the big highlight is just the unpredictability. I mean, like right from the start, right from uh, to an extent, it felt a little bit like uh, 2015 in that um, something went, went wrong for Mark Marcus in the very first race. The in, in 2015, first race at Qatar, uh, Mark Marcus turned up. We knew that there was a oh well, there had been sort of whispers that the you know the the, the Honda wasn't quite in the shape that it looked like, um, and they got into the first corner. Um, Marquez ran wide. Um, they had a problem with braking, and that was like the first sign that the that the engine was just not going to be up to winning the championship that year. And we saw that a little bit this year with Marquez also running wide again at Jerez at the first race, losing a whole bunch of uh, of ground, and then coming back through the field and uh, really misjudging it really badly at uh, at turn four. Um, falling off, crashing, breaking his arm. So, and and being out, you know, for the entire season. The fact that he's out for the entire season again, huge, huge surprise. Um, so yeah, it was. This is this is just the year of the of of the surprises. Well, let's jump straight into one of the big surprises then. KTM this year, probably everyone knew that they were going to be stronger and stronger as the years that they've been in MotoGP have gone on but this year they made a massive step forward and this weekend we saw another big step forward from Miguel Oliveira as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oliveira's win this weekend was just superb. He, I mean, you know, the way in which he took pole was exceptional and the way he managed the race just, you know, getting away at the start, um, 
never no one ever got sort of close enough in the first couple of laps to uh, to launch an attack and by the time he crossed the 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 line at the end of the first uh, lap he was always you know he had enough of a cushion to be able to manage this all the way home so it was just it was just a really outstanding ride uh, the progress KTM made in 2020 is just phenomenal the switch in chassis i mean it's still a steel tubular chassis but they're no, no no longer using sort of a round section the circular section they're actually using uh, a bit of an oval section and that made a huge difference and since then they've been able to really uh, tune the chassis to be much more competitive it's a much better bike um uh, you know the engine is, is is pliable and fast it breaks it turns a little bit or it turns enough um so yeah it's just it's just been really really outstanding and it's almost uh in a way it's sad for Polo Spargo that he hasn't won a race but he's had five podiums but never been able to get on the top step uh while um KTM now have three wins under their belt and again if you'd have bet on KTM having three wins prior to the start of the season I think um you would uh, come away with enough money to run a Moto3 team well, I think uh, certainly if you had bet that uh, Brad Binder was going to win one of those races, you probably would have done pretty well for yourself. And uh, I think, Dave, when you look at uh, what we saw from Oliveira this weekend, I think it was really important for him to be able to pick up this win because obviously his win in Austria was a really good performance. But before the red flag, we all thought, you know, Mir looked really well placed in that race. So this was a real win, lights to flag. He was able to lead all the way through the pole position, the fastest lap, just dominant performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this was there was no question about there are no question marks about this this race whatsoever. There are no mitigating circumstances. This was Miguel Oliveira's weekend. Uh, also, the fact that Miguel is a really really big deal in Portugal is uh, fairly obvious. Um, it's also uh, impressive that. Um, you know, he didn't lose his cool. He came in. He knew he was sort of hotly favoured. He knew what he wanted to do. He came in uh, and just got the job done. So um, Oliveira has also been really impressive through the year in the way that he's sort of grown um, uh, as a rider. The win in Austria obviously was uh, a big step forward, but he is... Um, He's he's really been impressive in these last few races. You know, he's not, he's rarely outside of sort of the top six or seven. So, um, yeah, it's going to be really it's going to be fascinating to to watch next year. Yeah, and Dave, you mentioned it last week. You've got one of your friends, John, the chickpea farmer, out in Portugal now, and uh, he's been able to see just the extent of what people think of Oliveira out there. You talked last week about how he's just a big sports star now. He's on the news on a regular basis. But how much of a factor do you think racing at home was for? Miguel, you sort of wondered whether this was going to be a bit like Nicky Hayden at, uh, at Laguna Seca in two thousand and five, where you know Oliveira's ridden a, a lot around uh, Portimao. He's raced a lot around Portimao. Um, you know, was this a question of him just knowing all the little tricks and secrets to going fast around Portimao? Because Portimao, it has a lot of undulations. It's a very, uh, it's very up and down circuit. It's to that. 
extent it's a little bit like uh, uh, Laguna, but Laguna is a little bit more intricate, if you like. Um, uh, but then I think um, so. I think it was Jack Miller pointed out that you know Cal Crutchlow has raced around there in World Superbikes. Um, uh, Franco Morbidelli has won races uh, on a Superstock bike. Petrucci has raced there. You know um, Sam Lowe's has raced there. Lots of people, lots of riders who have ex- uh, have experience of uh, Portimao because. Uh, of um, it's being ra- because World Superbikes raced there, and of course there would also there was the test there just before Le Mans, which also meant that everyone sort of got their uh, could get their head around the track. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it was a that he understood the track better than than anyone else. I just think he was extraordinarily motivated to to win his home race um uh, despite the fact that there were no uh, no fans there it really was just a question of you know that extra boost that you get from knowing knowing you're at home yeah a lot of the times when you talk to riders about being able to race at home one of the big advantages for them is whether it could be something as simple as being able to speak your own language all the way through the week when you're going down to the shops or anything like that when you're getting yourself ready for the weekend or just knowing the surroundings can make a big difference as opposed to knowing the track and uh, certainly for Oliveira he was able to take good advantage of that through the course of the weekend but David we also saw Paul was really strong again this weekend you mentioned that he's at five podiums this year it's unfortunate that we haven't been able to see him win a race but uh, he's had a really strong season as well yeah, yes, he, he's he has had a, just an exceptional season. He's been, you know, like we were expecting him uh, to, you know, maybe get a podium or two uh, this year, but we weren't expecting him to get that many. Um, a lot of that is the po- is is the fact that the KTM is so much better. It's also uh, KTM now with Tech Three Oliveira on a good bike um, with. Um, uh, Brad Binder obviously picking things up really, really quickly with Danny Pedrosa as the uh, as the development rider. It's just made it's taken a lot of the load of work off of the shoulders of um, uh, of Paul Espargaro as well. So before he was ha- having to spend a lot of time, even on race weekends, just working on development, just working on the bike, and he hasn't had to do that. He's been able to race much more freely with a much more competitive bike and he's um he's really come through and it's going to be it's almost uh, sad to see him leave to go to uh, Repsol Honda where there are no guarantees that he's going to be anywhere near as good as he was uh on the uh, on the KTM yeah I'm excited to see how he goes on the Honda though I think it's going to be one of those intriguing storylines early in the season to see what happens there obviously still bit of uncertainty about what's going to happen on the other side of the pit box with Mark Marquez when he's going to come back so at least for Paul it'll be interesting to see what he does on a different bike obviously for him he's already raced a Yamaha KTM's obviously suited his style a lot better and you'd hope that it's going to transition nicely once he's on the Honda but Dave we've got one rider that potentially could make that transition quite well we've got another manufacturer that's struggled with the transition through the course this year Ducati they've been off the pace all the way through the year. They've struggled for this, that, and the other. Davi's had a disastrous year. He still finished fourth in the championship. Like, how does this happen? Yeah, I mean, the the determining factor for Ducati has been Michelin's rear tyre, uh, especially for Davi. Davi uh, Dovicioso has a very particular braking style. What he was doing, because the front Michelin is not quite as uh, supportive uh, as 
for example, the old the old Bridgestone was. Um, what Ducati was doing was, or especially what Dovichoso was doing, was using the rear to brake, uh, and especially he was sort of sliding the rear a little bit uh, on corner entry to be able to get the bike into the corner and slow the bike ready for um, uh, 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 for corner entry or during corner entry, if you like. Um, this new rear Michelin didn't have the same; it had much more grip, and so it was much more difficult to uh, get it to slide predictably and smoothly. And uh, Dovichoso found himself really sort of struggling with, uh, uh, really struggling with that. And there were places where he could use the power of the Ducati that he could actually do well. I mean, you know, the, the fact that he got on the podium in Jerez was already a sign that uh, there was something different going on. Um, obviously, you know, winning in Austria certainly expected that. Um, but it was really a question of there were tracks where the bike worked really well for him uh, or his style and the Ducati and the rear mission worked really well. And there were other tracks where it just didn't work at all. And, um, he was uh, pretty much lost. So it was very, it was a very, uh, strange and difficult year for, uh, for David Chester because you saw other riders, Jack Miller and Pekka Banyaya, for example, they could make it work at some tracks. Um, uh, Jack Miller finished the season really, really strong. You know, like that's, what is it? Two, uh, uh, two podiums in a row. He's been competitive at most of the, uh, uh, of the last few races. So yeah, he, the, Miller seems to have got his head around this new, uh, uh, Michelin. Also, his riding style is a little bit different. It's not the same. It's a bit more like Peko's style than it is, than, uh, uh, like Dovi's style. And so that gives him a little bit more leeway. He's not leaning on that ability to break the bike with the, with the rear tire as much. Yeah, and I found it interesting to see that battle again this weekend, David, between Morbidelli and Miller because it was very different last lap scrap this time and uh, Jack obviously able to make that move and uh, get himself up into second spot at the end. But uh, really strong end of the season for him, like you said. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to him now whenever he moves on to the factory bike. But we have a question from Scott Rowe and uh, he's asking whether Dorna should support Ducati's request for the new front tyre to be introduced next year. What's your thought on that, David, and how would that impact Ducati? Um, well, first of all, it's not Dorna's decision. Um, it is up to the MSMA. The MSMA decides uh, on this. Um, Michelin are reasonably confident that they've got this new front tyre, right? Because this new front tyre is a, a little bit more stable. Um, it gives more um, it, it gives more support under braking. Um, so it'd be good for the Honda. It'd be good for the Ducati. Uh, it'd probably be quite good for the uh, for the KTM as well. Um, so it, it would definitely be interesting to see it. But uh, the Michelin's plan was to test it at uh, all of the post-race tests during 2020. But then, you know, the season got thrown out the window. It got reorganized uh, and it made it impossible. So they don't have really enough test data to be absolutely certain. Um, should they... Inter should they... Uh, um, should they introduce it? It would be... I think it would be it would be interesting. It would certainly be a a, a positive step forward, but it's really tricky. And I can also see because of the disarray in the MSMA, all of the uh, all of the six manufacturers, they all um, they used to be able to work together, and now they absolutely hate each other and um, will do whatever they can to obstruct one another. Uh, I can't see, for example, Yamaha or Suzuki. 
uh, honouring requests by Ducati. And so I think we are probably going to have to wait for 2021 unless uh, we have a much bigger testing programme in 2020, which would see it uh, introduced. But really, the manufacturers, I mean, really, if they wanted to introduce it, they would have to introduce it now while the factories are actually building their 2021 bikes um, so they can take it into account. Because otherwise, um, changing tyres mid-season or even at the beginning of the season is generally a really a, a really bad idea. And David, just uh, about Ducati before we move on to the next uh, topics that we're going to cover, but about Ducati, this is clearly a new dawn for Ducati going forward. They've gotten rid of Davizioso for next year, Petrucci's gone, they've really brought young riders to the fore for their lineup for next year. How do you see all that going for them? It's going to be interesting. I mean, Jack Miller is clearly at an age and at a point in his career where he is ready to be, you know, like the number one rider in a in a factory team. Uh, I sort of suspect that his personality is less suited to a factory team because the factory teams are a lot more corporate and a lot more of a pain in the ass. to be perfectly frank. Uh, you, go, you can speak a lot less freely. You can be a lot less free in your criticisms. Um, you have a lot more, really significantly more media obligations and uh, restrictions. Um, so it's... Uh, there are... Some riders who you know will do well in a factory team and other riders where you have to sort of uh, wonder where, uh, how well they'll coach just because the environment is so uh, less, so much less friendly. Um, if you look at the other riders, uh, like Pekka Banyaya has been fantastic at some places and um, uh, just a bit mediocre at others. He definitely has a really big uh, step to make. Uh, Jean Zarco in the Pramac team, I think he's going to be very, um, quite important to help to give the program stability because what I suspect Pramac, or well, Ducati have always used that seat in the Ducati uh, in the Pramac Ducati team as the, uh, basically is like a third test rider. The, um, uh, that rider, it used to be Danilo Petrucci and it's been Jack Miller in the part, uh, in the past. Um, they get all the new bits to test, um, so that the factory riders don't have to take risks. Um, uh, so that the factory riders can, you know, concentrate on trying to win races and win championships. So I think Zarco in that role is going to be uh, interesting. And then you've got, you know, basically three rookies: Marini, um, Bastianini, uh, Jorge Martin. It's, uh, I think that is just, you know, throwing names into a hat and uh, and hoping that one of them sort of comes up uh, comes up trumps. Dave, you mentioned there about the media interactions and the extra responsibility that goes on with being a factory rider in MotoGP. You were talking about Jack Miller at the time. But uh, how do you see someone like Miguel Oliveira dealing with that? He doesn't seem to enjoy talking to the media too much. He uh, doesn't talk, uh, doesn't enjoy talking to the media at all. Um, uh, I think he's not too bad as long as you're asking sort of reasonable questions. But um, uh, he did not display a great deal of patience uh, a lot of the time so that was um, it, it which was quite entertaining but that i mean he will have he will have to deal with it i think he can deal with it. also he has the maturity he's you know like he will be irritated um uh, but he's not going to end up sort of paying half of his wages in fines for um uh, saying the wrong thing sort of thing which is what other riders have had to do in the past. 
Yeah, well, let's go to one rider that's pretty much been the darling of the media through the course this year, Franco Morbidelli. We've been able to see Franco really have a superb season all the way through, rewarded at the end of the season with uh, podiums in those final races, lots of race wins for him as well. On the 2019 bike, he's been able to show that he could make it work. And uh, a little bit unfortunate, you could say nearly, that he missed out on winning the championship as it came down to it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, it was amazing that he did actually sort of get that close. Um, but then again, uh, we saw that uh, Juan Mir got taken out uh, in Brno. He had a crash of his own making in uh, Jerez, so it might have been it might have been less close uh, than it ended up being. But um, yeah, I mean, Franco Morbidelli has been superb. Morbidelli had. There were a couple of things which which helped him this year. The first one was that um, uh, last year he had his ass kicked by his teammate. Um, uh, Fabio Quartararo came in and was regularly on the podium. And I think that made a huge, huge difference to him It sort of mentally. He realized like, okay, no, now I've got to step up my game. And he worked that much harder during the winter. That, that was a, a, a big change at the start. And then secondly, the 2019 Yamaha seems to be a little bit more flexible, a little bit easier to to set up than the 2020 bike. Obviously, there's, there's loads more data with the 2019 bike anyway, um, but it's a bit more user-friendly in that uh, and, and not just for in terms of riding but also in terms of setup and uh, and all the rest of it so what you saw with the 2020 bike was that it was it was either on the podium or it was nowhere um so it's it has an awful lot of potential which is what uh, Lynn Jarvis said to me at the beginning of the season, you know, we think the 2020 bike has got more potential. Um, it's not that much better now, but it's got more potential. Uh, and it looks that way. But without the time to actually do the testing and to, and to figure the bike out, then really um, when it's right, it's right. And when it's not right, it's just uh, absolutely useless. Franco Morbidelli had the benefit of um, a stable package, really good crew chief and... Uh, again, I think I said this last week as well. You know, the, this this mental advantage of knowing he's not going to get it get performance from the bike. The only place he's going to get performance from is from between his ears. So yeah, that was um, he, he really grew as a rider. It was it was it was a really really impressive season by him. Well, Dave, as he grew and as he improved, we saw two other Yamaha riders go the exact opposite. We saw Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quattararo have nightmare seasons, really, I think it's fair to say, even though obviously their high marks through the course of the season, very impressive, both of them able to win races, both of them able to dominate races at times through the season, but sixth and eighth in the championship standings at the end of the season. And, and you'd have to say the the mentality of both of them through the course of the season, it doesn't bode well for them being teammates next year. Um, no, it does not. Um I think, I mean, it's fairly obvious that they have struggled with the pressure um, and not just the external pressure, but pressure from themselves, the expectations. They've expected to be able to go really, really uh, quick, especially, I think, when you, uh, you know, they were first and second at the first two races. That really sort of conditions your mind and frames how you see the uh, uh, how you see the championship. And if you start off thinking, "Oh, this is going to be a doddle," 
um, and then you get to Brno and the bike doesn't work and you get to Austria and the thing is blowing up everywhere and um, uh, and the, the brakes are overheating and the bike isn't working. Uh, then I think that really changes it. Sort of, it, it really changes your attitude. It was clear. I mean, the one thing that both Quattararo and Vinales said all through the uh, year was, if there's grip, this bike is fast. Um, if there's no grip, then we're nowhere. Uh, Portimao was a track where there was uh, some grip, but not. It, it wasn't fantastic grip, but it was. It was sort of usable. Um, and they didn't end up. I mean, like their positions in this race. Uh, Look much worse than when you actually look at the look at the real uh, the results. I mean, if you look at you know Vinales and Rossi finished at eleventh and twelfth, which is which looks absolutely terrible. But then you look at the times. You know they were what eighteen seconds behind uh, uh, behind the winner. But then you know ninth place was uh, uh, also eighteen se- uh, eighteen seconds, and you know three more. Uh, if they'd have been three seconds faster, they would have put them in sixth. So they were not that, not really all that far off. Um, basically, there was a massive group in that battle for sort of like fifth, sixth place. Uh, and uh, it was a bit of a lottery as to who came off best and who uh, and who didn't. And there, I think they really struggled struggled with their lack of top speed, which was uh, which was penalised. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the bike develops next year. That's going to be a really, really uh important thing and we have to remember that this you know the, the the bike was hobbled due to a lack of revs uh because of this problem with the valves they had to try and keep the bike in one piece and make sure it didn't go pop um that i think was a was a really big thing and david that's actually a question we have from one of our listeners fast fuzz who's asking are yamaha stuck with their current engines or are they going to be able to fix them over the winter uh they are Stuck with their current engines, they're not allowed to change the. Uh, uh, they're not allowed to change the internals, and so they will have to choose between the 2020 or the 2019 engine because both of those engines were homologated for 2020, but they can't update it. Um, uh, however, they should be able to uh, at least make sure that the spec of the valves which they ordered. Uh, actually works and and they'll be able, they will be able to test these valves much more uh, much more thoroughly to make sure that they actually work properly um and so they'll at least have a few more reps but there's a lot i mean there is still a lot they can do there's a lot they can do with electronics there's a lot they can do with you know changing the exhaust to change the engine character a little bit uh and they're completely free to change the uh, change the chassis and um their biggest problem has been this lack of grip, this inability to get it to find any drive when there's no grip, uh, and that is fixable. And David, just uh, looking at Yamaha as well, this was obviously the end of Valentino Rossi's time as a factory rider. What did you make of this weekend for Rossi? Like we saw him obviously battling it out in 14th, 15th position for most of the race. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, I think... Missing those, uh, what was it, two races uh, due to COVID, um, that had a huge, huge impact on him. Um, it really uh, made it difficult. And he was sort of, you know, a little bit ill. Uh, uh, he was actually, uh, he came down a little bit with 
a little bit ill with the with the virus so it took its toll on his fitness it meant he couldn't train properly he wasn't allowed out uh, he couldn't ride he came out got out of his rhythm and it took him a little while to get back into his rhythm so yeah it was um it was exactly the disruption which he absolutely did not need um and also i just think the mental stress of it all the, the mental stress of the whole thing i think has been much more difficult for the older riders than for the younger riders uh just because you know you're as you, or well certainly in my case as i am noticing your mental resilience um sort of drops a little as you get older you get less uh you have less patience for that sort of nonsense and um the covid added and uh, an extra level of nonsense to the season which you when you are trying to perform at your absolute peak um it just adds an extra burden which makes it that much more difficult you're talking about yourself there as well dave obviously just obviously to perform at yeah. that absolute peak obviously this year we did see rossi have some good races if you think back to the second hereth race catalonia he looked really strong yeah. but dave we've got another question from one of our listeners 46 chicken 69 so you can probably imagine who his two favorite riders are <laughs> um and he asks do all great riders fizzle out like rossi now david i want to make one thing perfectly clear Rossi's a lot older than most other writers at this stage <laughs> of his career. Exactly. No, I mean, uh, the the brutal answer is, is no. Most of them um, don't get the chance to fizzle out. Most of them uh, uh, end up being forced to retire. If you think of Mick Doohan, um, whose career basically ended at Jerez in the same corner that, um, the, that almost cost uh, Mark Marquez his career this year um, if you think of uh, uh, Kevin Schwantz where he had enormous wrist problems which he just could not overcome and especially once Wayne Rainey fell uh, uh, when he lost Wayne Rainey which for him was a massive motivation um, same with Wayne Rainey you know Wayne Rainey was at the peak of his uh, of his powers until he um uh, unfortunately suffered a, a spinal injury and and ended up you know ended up in a wheelchair that ended his uh, his race so yeah normally you don't get a chance to fizzle out um there are right there, there are riders who do I mean Loris Capirossi was one Loris Capirossi was a fantastic rider but then he just sort of hung on for too long um but I think I think Rossi is still I mean he's still capable of uh, podiums I think there's a decent chance he might still win a race I don't think he will win another championship but um, uh, I think this I think this year made him look worse than he really is yeah and I think that uh, it's always worth remembering like you said David most riders are retired rather than mm. retire and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Rossi going forward as well, just see how he reacts next year potentially being in a team with a bit less pressure and there I say it as well, David, a bit less of a say because we're used to Rossi being able to dictate terms. I don't think he's going to be in a position to do that with Patronus next year. It's not going to be quite like what you would have thought five years ago if Rossi went to a team like that. I think they're going to be in a position where they'll just say, no, mate, this is how it is. And we saw that with the crew that's been assembled around him. So maybe for Rossi next year, not having all that pressure, not having all that freedom that comes from being a decision maker, like he had basically been at Yamaha for quite a period of time, that could be a big benefit as well, David. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's uh, uh, he's much more in the situation that uh, Franco Morbidelli is in, 
where he's just given the bike and told to get on with it. Um, he won't be leading the development of the bike. He will be, I mean, you know, Yamaha will still use his input, obviously. Uh, uh, but when the decisions get made, the decisions will get made by uh, Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quartararo uh, for right or wrong. Um, but they're the factory team. They make the decisions. They they drive the direction of the bike uh, along with Cal Crutchlow, um, who will be test rider for them next year. So, yeah, I, I think it'll also be a little bit liberating because also the the... The expectations will be much lower. When you're in the factory team, you know, when you are a nine-time world champion in the factory Yamaha team, you are expected to win. Um, now, he's still a nine-time world champion, but he's in a, in a satellite team, so he's got an excuse. So that get, that takes a little bit of pressure on, gives him a little bit more freedom, I think. And David, we've got one man that's a nine-times world champion. We've got another guy that's a two-time world champion, Juan Mir. Obviously world champion this year, but his season didn't end as well as he would have wanted. He spoke before Portimao of wanting to get it done in Valencia just so that he had have that pressure removed going into the final race of the season. We've got a question in from TZ John, and uh, John's asking us, what exactly happened to Mir this weekend? Because we saw him obviously on the opening lap of the race, have a bit of an issue at turn three. We saw him retire from the race as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it all went wrong sort of in uh, free practice when he was... Um, Suzuki were trying something with the with their electronics, which turned out to be complete the, completely the wrong direction. And that uh, they didn't figure this out until basically the end of FP3, beginning of FP4. Um, that was too late. It meant that Mir was in Q1 and he ended up... Uh, with a horrific qualifying, uh, I think it definitely is quite worst qualifying of the year. He was starting from 20th. Um, that put him in, I mean, you, when you start from 20th, you are in trouble, uh, because you're always going to be in the middle of a melee. Um, he ended up, uh, uh turn one, I think, um, or, well, no, turn two or turn three on the first lap, uh, slamming into, um, Peko Banyaya, uh, which, caused Banyaya to uh, to go out. Uh, later on, he clipped the back of, I think a couple of laps later, he clipped the back of um, uh, Joan Zarco. And that seems to have dislodged some kind of a sensor or disabled the sensor, which stopped the traction control from working. The, tra the traction control was working very intermittently. Uh, and that just basically made it impossible to uh, ride. So he ended up uh, retiring. So it's a good job he did get it done at Valencia because otherwise he wouldn't have got it done, certainly wouldn't have got it done in Portimao. He would have had to rely on luck. And it was a tough weekend all in for Suzuki as well, Dave, because Alex Rins only picked up a point. They went down the wrong route with the tyres. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was just a it was exactly the weekend they didn't want. But then again, if you're going to have a terrible weekend, you might as well do it on the weekend after you've uh, won the uh, won the world championship. It's um, uh, you know it you've got nothing left to lose. Um, yeah, it, it, I also wonder if this was also about the amount of data that there that, that there was because what the Suzuki has been really really good at is going to a track without experience um and just being straight fast straight out of the bat but the test riders had all been all been to Portimao to test it so the other manufacturers all had sort of ballpark setup to begin with uh, and they also had you know 70 minutes or 70 minutes and 70 minutes 140 minutes in in total 
of uh, free practice on the Friday, which also gave them a much more time to actually get the bikes dialed in. And what we saw is the Suzuki's were, uh, when we came to a new track, the Suzuki's were always fast straight away. They always had a really good uh, base setting to start with. Uh, and you would see the other manufacturers catch up in the second races. And I think sort of we had the combination of having a test and then this really um, much longer uh, free practice sort of gave the other manufacturers it was it was a bit like sort of compressing two weekends into one and that gave the that gave them the other manufacturers a chance to catch up to Suzuki and sort of uh, take away their advantage and david obviously there was a lot that happened off the track as well this week and uh, probably the the biggest thing was that we probably looked at the last Grand Prix for Andrea De Vizioso and Cal Crutchlow. Uh, yeah, I mean, Cal Crutchlow has been coming for a while because Cal Crutchlow, I, I did an interview with, uh, with Cal in 2019. Uh, I can't remember if it was Austria or Misano now. I think it might have been Austria where he basically said, you know, this is going to be my last year uh, or 2020 was going to be his last year. Um, but... Then he was, he changed his mind a little bit. He was thinking about, all right, maybe I'll continue. Um, uh, but this schedule, um, being away from home so much, um, because also he's been in Ireland during the, uh, he hasn't been in back to the Isle of Man because it was difficult to get in and out of the Isle of Man. Uh, so he hasn't been able to live, you know, like in his own home. Uh, his uh, daughter Willow is now, you know, about to go to school. Um, there were a lot of reasons for him to not continue. He lost his job. He was sort of pushed out at, uh, at LCR or at Honda um, and, uh, to make way for Alex Marcus in, in, in LCR. Uh, so yeah, basically there were few, there were more reasons for him to stop racing than there were for him to continue. Yeah, and obviously the draw of Ireland is enough to make anyone want to stop <laughs> riding a MotoGP bike. But uh, Dave, when you look at um, Davi and Cal, we've seen two riders that, especially in Davi's case. Over the last few years, Davi was really able to maximise everything that he could do. Obviously, this year it sort of fell off a little bit. We saw Cal do the same as well. There were always those races each year where Cal was just incredible. It could be yeah. Saxon Ring one year or Phillip Island. And then there was that period for a few years where he was really able to pull together a lot more of those days than he had been up to that point in his career. But when he was at his best, he was unbeatable. When Davi was at his best we saw a rider that had no fear of going up against Mark Marquez. We're going to miss those two guys on the grid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, Cal is a huge personality and a genuinely, I mean, like it, it, it sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but he is a genuinely nice guy. I, I mean, he is, um, uh, like I said, I, I have a memory of him interacting with some kids sometime uh, at Misano uh, of um, the kids coming up to him wanting a, um, a just as he was about to do a TV interview and um, wanting a uh, an autograph and he basically grabbed them and stuck them in front of the uh, TV camera and says no no you don't do my TV interview for me uh, and he was he was always like that Um he was always good for a quote. He was always interesting um, and he was always competitive. And that was what made it great. Uh, what we'll miss about Dovicioso, Dovicioso's mind was so analytical. If I, when Kate, after Casey Stoner left, 
Andrea Dovicioso became the rider that I would go to to ask about technical things because he could understand and explain technical things really, really well. He could explain the technical side of racing. He could explain why certain things were happening. He could explain the difference between particular tyres or a particular technology or why a particular corner was difficult. So um, uh, that was great. And he had, in that position in Ducati, he had the tools to take the fight to Mark Marcus. It never, he never quite had exactly what he needed. Um, the Ducati was still fatally flawed in a few places, and he didn't have the talent to overcome those flaws in the way that Mark Marquez has the the, uh, the the talent to overcome the weaknesses of the uh, of the Honda. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he was he's just he's just an outstanding an outstanding rider, really an, a, an exceptional rider. And Dave, we've got a question in from Paul Leggett, who's asking who's going to be the next British rider in the Premier class or who's the best chance of uh, being that next guy? Uh, honestly, I have absolutely no idea. I don't think there is a clear um, uh, candidate. I have to say that I've been really quite impressed with um, uh, Jake Dixon this year. I was a bit of a skeptic when he came into uh, a Moto Two, but this year he's made a massive step forward. He's he's really shown a lot of progress. Um, I don't think he's ready for Moto GP yet, but he might be in 2022. Um, so we'll have to see. He has to make the same step again in uh, uh, in in 2020. We were in 2021. Um, Apart from that, I really, I really don't know. Like, I don't watch BSB, so I've got no uh, idea who could be competitive in BSB. Uh, you, I mean, you watch all forms of racing, plus you know every single British rider in uh, the World Superbike paddock. So maybe you would be in a better place to say to answer that question than me, Steve. Uh, well, to be honest, in BSB, there's not really that many riders that jump off the sheet at you. Like, even when Jake was in BSB. I was never a really big believer either, David, because he was really good at Knock Hill, but he wasn't really that great anywhere else at times. And uh, then, you know, he strung together a decent season and got his chance to move to Moto2. Didn't go well last year. Went very well at times this year. Made a big step forward. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if he hadn't gotten injured at the end of the year. But when you're looking at a British rider in that class, you also saw Sam Lowe's this year. And, you know, obviously Sam's older than Jake. He's had a chance in MotoGP. But there's a bit of unfinished business for him there. But whether or not he'd get an opportunity at 31, 32 years of age is a very different story. So you can't imagine that. So then you're looking at whether or not, you know, a Rory Skinner comes in after winning the British Supersport Championship last year. If he does really well in BSB, maybe he gets an opportunity. In World Superbikes, maybe the option is if Aprilia, because let's face it, they can't seem to get anyone else on the bike. If they do end up looking down a superbike option of someone that's available, maybe Chaz Davis, but that definitely went very cold over the course of the weekend. Aprilia saying that they weren't particularly interested in having a rider from a superbike background. They wanted to have a Grand Prix rider. So that's going to count against him. It's difficult to see where the next British rider comes from, really. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is is that, uh, yeah, there isn't much interest in prototype racing, the actual racing of prototypes in uh, in the UK. There's too much of a focus on 
production racing. Obviously, I think they are. There's some talk of them easing that up a little bit. Um, but yeah, you can make decent. I mean, if you are really good, uh, you can make decent money in BSB. Uh, at least you know earn a wage, um, and then you have a background to go from a production-based background. You know you've you've. You're racing Pirellis on uh, on stock bikes, and you're going to. Uh, uh, it's much easier to make the jump to World Superbikes than it is to make the jump to uh, MotoGP. Uh, going into the Grand Prix paddock means uh, preferably racing in the Spanish Championship when you're 13 and 14, uh, and then moving up to uh, through Moto three to Moto two, or doing what Jake Dixon has done uh, and what Sam Lowe's did going in uh, going to Moto two. Uh, also, I have to say, Matt, shout out to Matt, Sam Lowe's because Sam Lowe's uh, has had a really, really good uh, season this uh, th- th- this year. Yeah, we'll get on to Moto2 and Moto3 in a couple of minutes' time. But, uh, David, there was also one question in from Salty Player as well. And uh, he was asking just about the salty nature of what we saw between <laughs> uh, Jorge Lorenzo and Cal Crutchlow over the course of the weekend. Obviously, it was mostly one-sided. But yeah. uh, what did you make of Lorenzo this weekend? Lorenzo uh, is just irritated that someone has taken his um, uh, cushy testing number. Um, I mean, uh, you know, it's a million. It's a million euro job um, for sixteen. What is it? Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen days work. Uh, uh, work uh, plus some wild cards. Um, but I think also Lorenzo was irritated by the fact that he didn't really get a chance to show what he was capable of because there was. Yamaha didn't do any testing this year. Uh, he was on the bike in Sepang, where he was pretty good. And then the next time he was on the bike was in uh, Portimao. And by that time, he hadn't spent any time on a motorbike. Um, and he was, frankly, he was a little bit out of shape. But that was that was partly down to him. But it wasn't his really his fault. He hadn't really thought about... Um, he, he'd sort of given up on on actually doing any testing this year in 2020 because he'd been told by Yamaha that that it wasn't going to be a possibility. Um, so actually to lose that job, um, that was just him being really, really, uh, uh, really, really irritated. Crutchlow was doing his best not to make comments about it, but Crutchlow being Crutchlow, he couldn't uh, avoid the occasional barb. Uh, but yeah, that was that was mostly just um, uh, Lorenzo being irritated at having lost a, uh, a cushy little number and also having his pride... Um, He's a five-time world champion, and um, he gets pushed aside for someone who has only won, what is it, three MotoGP races? Yeah, and um, what's interesting for me with that as well, though, David, is that sometimes the guys that do all the winning are the worst test riders in the world because they're great at being able to adapt themselves. They're great at being able to figure a way how to make a bike work. And, uh, you know, you see it time and again where even if you look at whether it's car racing or bikes, it could be Michael Schumacher, one of the best of all time, for my money, the best F1 driver of all time. By all accounts, he was the worst test driver in the world because it took him two laps to figure out a way to drive around the problem. When you look at in bikes, there's tons of guys that have tried to be a test rider. Casey Stoner's a great test rider because he just gets on the bike and rags it. So you get great data from him. Bayless was the same. But then maybe with someone like Lorenzo, you can't get him to take that approach. He needs a bike to work in a specific way. So he will try and develop the bike in that specific way, as opposed to someone like Cal, 
Cal might be able to jump on the bike and be able to give them the same sort of information that they need as opposed to the information that he wants to give. That's why Sylvain Gantoli's been so successful as a test rider. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, being a test rider is a very, very specific uh, role. Um, I mean, in Hon- inside Honda, Crutchlow did a lot of work. He's he had a very specific role, which was to be the uh, the uh, you know normal human uh, rider in the in, in in HRC, because they had Mark Marquez who would just ride around problems and and you know he, he would always go fast. Um, but you didn't actually learn what was needed to fix the bike when you had Mark Marcus on the uh, on the bike. Cal Crutchlow could understood what why he couldn't do what he needed to do and could explain that. And Peter Baum, um, a, a former crew chief who worked with Cal Crutchlow in the past, um, he told me he, he's extremely enthusiastic about uh, uh, Crutchlow's analytical ability. He also said like. With Crutchlow on the bike, he'd get on the bike, go out, do two laps, come back and tell you exactly what was wrong with the bike. Um, he didn't need any time, a lot of time to figure it out. Some riders also need sort of longer to figure out what the problem is and we'll come back and tell you. But Crutchlow would go out and go, all right, it's not doing this, this, this and this. And they'll go out again and go, all right, okay, we've fixed this and there's, uh, uh, but, the, but this is still no good. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, I think Crutchlow as a test rider for, uh, for Yamaha is a fantastic move. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how it works and definitely hope that next year we're able to have wild cards back and hopefully you're able to have Crutchlow back on the grid a couple of times next year. But David, just looking at how that grid's going to form up, I have to ask you, because I haven't seen any denials from you at this stage, have you been offered the Aprilia MotoGP <laughs> ride? I um, um, I can neither confirm nor deny that, uh, Stephen English. Um, uh, my uh, my manager tells me not to talk to the media. Um, uh, no, honestly, it's um, uh, the, Aprilia put out a press release on Monday saying that it was going to be between Savadori and uh, Lorenzo Savadori and uh, Bradley Smith. Uh, basically, Alicia Spargar is going to be his seat is safe, and then the second seat they will choose between their two test riders, Savadori and Smith, uh, are at the end of the winter test. So they'll test with both of those and see who comes out on top. So there's a decent chance for both of them. Um, I think if if Dorna had a say, which they won't have that much of a say, um, uh, then they would really like Bradley Smith because that's good for BT Sport and the British uh, TV contract. Um, but if Lorenzo Savadori is clearly faster and clearly better, then they will put Savadori on the bike. Uh, there's an age difference as well. Savadori is much younger than uh, than Smith, so that would also uh, that could also be a factor for them. Um, but yeah, that that's what they're going to do for the moment. Uh, but it's a long way until the beginning of the season, so who knows whether they change their mind or not? They tried to get a Moto Two rider on the bike. They talked to Marco Bezzecchi, and at one point it looks real like like um. Joe Roberts came very, very close to signing. It looked like the deal was on. Uh, well, basically, we heard Saturday morning the deal is on, and then Saturday night, oh, the deal is off again. Or oh, sorry, Sunday night the deal is off again. Uh, so there was a lot going on this weekend. There, were, I think there were a lot of rider managers in and out of the Aprilia track trying to uh, Aprilia truck trying to persuade uh, Massimo Rivola to give them a chance, give them the ride. Uh, and also to find out what the conditions are, so it was um, it was a bit of a uh, it was a bit of an odd one that one really. 
Yeah, it sounded like there was a lot of managers going into the truck trying to convince uh, their own riders that they should probably take that seat as well, <laughs> Dave, because from what we've seen from Aprilia, like, this has been another season where Aprilia made progress. They're closer to the front than they have been, but they're still the worst of the factories out there, and uh, it's tough to sell that to a young rider. Absolutely. I mean, the risk of going to Aprilia, th there is a big upside because they they have made a big step forward uh, or with their bike. This bike is much better than than last year's bike. Um, the problem is that KTM made a much, much bigger step and became competitive, and that immediately put basically three of their four bikes into uh, – well, it made, them po it made three of their four bikes podium contenders, uh, which raises the bar again for Aprilia just to get anywhere near the podium. Um yeah, it's been it's been difficult. They do keep getting closer, but as they get closer, the the the, the field at the front gets more and more packed. So even though sort of their their gap in terms of time is less, the gap in terms of position looks just as awful as ever. So um, it's a it's a difficult one for them. It's also going to be interesting to see what happens in twenty twenty two when Aprilia split off and become their own team, and they t spoke openly about wanting satellite teams in twenty twenty two. Um, so if there are four Aprilias on the grid in 2022, then then it starts to get interesting. If they've got you know so a couple of fast young rookies on the bike, they might sort of strike gold in the way that um, uh, KTM have done this year, for example. Yeah, David, it was interesting for me that uh, whenever all of these issues have come to light, that they didn't immediately have some sort of announcement that Fabio Di Giantonio was going to be put on the bike, which probably does give some legs to the rumours that uh, Grassini will continue as their own team in 2022, potentially with Suzuki's. So there wasn't any real benefit to them putting their young rider onto the Aprilia. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. I mean, that whole situation is complicated by the fact that, as I understand it, Digia is signed with Grassini rather than Aprilia, uh, and Grassini are looking to be their own team in 2022. There's talk of them getting the Suzuki's, um, but who knows? Maybe they'll stick with Aprilia. So yeah, there was there was a lot of sort of moving parts. It's a bit like it's very vaguely reminiscent of the situation with uh, Valentino Rossi and Yamaha where there's so many different parties all talking to each other that it actually takes a lot longer to actually get a deal done and makes it a lot more complicated for people to agree terms so um, uh, but I think we saw this this week again that Digia needs another uh, year on the bike he needs another year in Moto2 to get his head uh, sort of sorted a little bit um but he has you know he's clearly fast he's clearly has has potential but um uh, i think he needs a stable year uh, before he can really make a move up to moto gp yeah and uh, dave will move nicely into model two and model three now and uh just uh to get your thoughts on what we saw in both of those classes obviously the moto two class we saw a title decided inia bastianini able to win the championship and it went right down to the wire yeah, I mean it was a um it was a great race. I mean the Moto 2 race was a fantastic race and it was it was a real nail biter as well. Bastianini did exactly enough to win it. Um 
which I think uh, was good for him in that he held his nerve. He had to just sort of hold his nerve. Uh, fantastic win by Remy Gardner. Uh, Gardner really, really rode the wheels off that thing. Uh, that is another rare, he's another rider who's, you know, the win has been coming for a long time. Um, and he just needed to get his under his belt. And it's going to be really interesting to see, interesting to see Remy on the uh, IO bike next year. Uh, a really solid team. Uh, contract with KTM is going to be absolutely fascinating to actually see what happens to uh, to Remy. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen going forward for Remy because it's one of those times where we see a rider at the end of a season really make that step forward and pick up their race win and suddenly it could uh, really galvanise them going forward as well. If you think back the last few years, we saw that at times where I think uh, Oliveira finished the season really strong and then went into his next year in Moto2 and was able to make another step forward. We've seen it with a host of riders in the smaller classes as well be able to do that. So Remy could well be one of those riders that really does make that step forward after winning that first race. He's been in, in a position enough over the course of the last 18 months to win races, but this was him finally getting that step. So that's going to be exciting to see what happens for him going forward as well. And uh, you'd have to say, David, for next year in Moto2, it looks really interesting because you've got Gardner stays on, Lowe's stays on, Bezeki stays on. There's quality riders all the way through. And then obviously Joe Roberts has turned down the Aprilia ride. He's going to be replacing Bastianini next season. So he's going to be on a good bike as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, 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 there are, there's real quality in, in, um, in Moto 2. There's riders moving up. Uh, Alberto Rain is moving up to Moto 2. Um, it's going to be fascinating. And, I, and, uh, yeah, Sam Lowe's is, I don't think Sam Lowe's is going to get another chance in Moto GP, but I don't think that matters. I think, uh, Sam Lowe's has a real chance to become, uh, uh, to, to be Moto 2 world champion. He very nearly, w uh, won it this year. Um, you know, a, a, a bad crash last week at, uh, Valencia really damaged his hand. And his race this weekend was just phenomenal. The, the, um, I mean, after, after warm up on Sunday morning, uh, and he was saying the same on Saturday as well. He didn't think he would be able to actually race on Sunday. So for him to be that competitive, to race that hard at such an incredibly physically tra physical track, um, is I think that's the absolute. I think that's one of the most uh, impressive performances I've seen uh, for, uh, from a rider. Um, and you know, if he hadn't have been injured, then I think there would have been a very decent chance of him actually winning this year. So, um, it's good. He's turned, he's to an extent, he's sort of turning into Tom Looty in the sense that he is now the gatekeeper. He is now the rider that you have to beat if you want to be Moto GP champ or Moto 2 champion rather. Um, you know, he's on a good bike. He's in a good team. He's going to win races. Uh, he's going to be uh, contend for the title. And if you as a young Moto 2 rider wants to um, uh, be champion, then he's the person you're going to have to get past. Yeah, he's going to be one of those known commodities in the class that for teams in MotoGP as well they can use him as that benchmark yeah. and uh, definitely yeah I couldn't argue with you there David like really uh, was was the case all the way through this weekend especially but uh, what about Moto3 David because obviously we had a new champion crowned Albert Arenas and uh, he was able just to just about get across the line <laughs> and uh, it was a fairly action packed end to that race it was um it, it was a, uh, a well it was an action packed race it was a fantastic win by uh, uh, Raul Fernandez who 
I mean, yeah, he deserved that win, absolutely. Uh, Arena struggled, but it looked more that uh, Ayogura was struggling more than Albert Arenas, and in the end, that was what uh, made it. But the ride of the weekend has to be Tony Arbolino coming through from 27th. I mean, before the race started, uh, my uh, Rosha, my wife, asked me, all right, so who do I... Um, uh, who do I need to be watching to uh, win the title? And I said, um, well, it's basically Arenas versus Ogura. Uh, uh, you know, Arbolino's 27th. There's no way he's going to be a factor in this race. But he was, uh, what was he, 10th, I think, after the first lap. It was um, just an astonishingly great race from uh, from Tony Arbolino. And that's that, that's really, really, he's, again, another really exciting prospect to see uh, what he does in, uh, next year. Um so yeah, that was that was really uh, really made made the working and it made the weekend worth watching, and also made uh, the championship uh, contenders uh, a lot more interesting. And if he hadn't have sat in the wrong seat on that aircraft coming back from uh, Le Mans, then it might have worked out completely because he basically had to miss a race because he because he had to self-isolate after being in close contact with someone who who was tested positive for COVID-19. Yeah, it ended up four points was all that was the difference for them and uh, that's what cost Arbolino the championship arguably and really unfortunate for Tony. As you said, David, I'm excited to see what he's going to be like in Moto2 next year. Obviously, Arenas is going to move up. Ayagura is moving up. Fernandez is moving up and uh, it does set up really nicely just to show that constant stream of talent coming through. And David, you were actually on uh, Twitter earlier on in the week just talking about the talent cups and how they can be used to develop talent. When you look at the likes of Ayagura, he's obviously come through the Asia Talent Cup, but then you've got uh, the likes of uh, Raul Fernandez. He's come through the Rookies Cup. That's obviously been integral in developing talent over the last uh, 10, 15 years. But when you look at those championships, they really do bring riders from different countries. It's not a case of having to be Spanish or Italian you now get an opportunity all the way through. And if you're talented enough, you'll get a good ride. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. The the Asia Talent Cup has been, I can't remember where, I think we're in about the fourth or the fifth year now. And it's really starting to uh, pay off. We're really starting to see some really good riders come through. Um, the, the, The British Talent Cup didn't quite work out the way that they wanted, but that is still going on. Uh, and it is producing riders, you know, certainly for BSB. Um, so it, there is talent there. Uh, Dorna are now starting the Northern Talent Cup, um, which is for riders basically, you know. Uh, in Germany, your back garden, David. In my back garden, that's right. Yeah, Germany, Netherlands, uh, Scandinavia, um, uh, Czech Republic, um, France to an extent as well. So that's uh, that's going to be really important. But again, these things take a long time to actually filter through. So, um, uh, And in the end, um, you do have to go to the CEV uh, and race in Moto3. That is really the proving ground. Um, the Red Bull rookies is important, but it's important to have the mixture of the CEV and Red Bull rookies to get the the mixture of um the close racing and the red bull rookies but also the experience in bike setup and working with engineers which you get in moto 3 in the cv and you don't get so much in in uh, in rookies and, and other talent cups 
yeah, I think that's the key thing. It's to be able to combine them. That's why we've seen so many riders do a really good job over the course of the last few years. The likes of Adrian Fernandez, I think, this year and a few others in the CV Championship. Pedro Acosta, I think, probably being your best example of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Acosta is going to be in uh, in Moto3 next year and it's going to be really interesting to see what, what he does. Um, I have a question for you, uh, Steve, because this that's is... That's not how your- this is supposed to work, Dave. Yeah, we're too late, mate. Um, hard luck. This is your back guard. I mean, you know Portimao. You've you've been there a lot uh, with the super bikes. What was it like seeing Grand Prix bikes around Portimao? Do you know what? I thought it was great because we also had different camera angles. Because obviously at a MotoGP race, there's a lot more cameras compared to at a superbike race. And I actually loved the shot as they came down through the hill down into Jones's corner turn nine and when they came through that up to the next right hander because we got to see that as one continuous corner from ground level and it looked fantastic Portimao is unbelievable you know it's uh, yeah. it's somewhere where I think everyone should go like I've taken my dad to the, to the superbike ground a couple of years ago and Mickey loved it he thought it was fantastic he went trackside he was able to get nice and close to the action but it's nice and safe as well the riders have to work really hard for me it's right up there with Phillip Island for being able to recommend that as this is one of those tracks you have to go to. And uh, to see Grand Prix bikes on it was really interesting. I thought what was probably the most interesting thing for me was the Moto3 bikes over the leap because those guys were really having to manhandle the bike. Whereas I think coming into the weekend, we all kind of expected MotoGP bikes would be incredibly spectacular, but the aero worked so well that a MotoGP bike, it looked pretty cool, but it wasn't quite the big snarling beast yeah. that we all expected no exactly i mean the moto gp bikes had it much more under control uh whereas the moto 2 and the moto 3 with a lot less electronics and and no aero um yeah they were really having to having to fight those and it was just um it, yeah it's a spectacular it's a spectacular track it was the first uh race track that i ever attended uh, in my in my professional capacity as a journalist so um i loved it then um i would love to go back um I hope that we do go back and they will let journalists in because those two things have to go together and that's not um uh, that's not given just yet uh, with the way that the pandemic is uh, is developing but yeah that's definitely uh, it's definitely a bucket list thing it's a it's a, a beautiful place obviously you like it for the golf whereas um, we all know that golf is the work of um, the, the uh, of Beelzebub and uh, should be um, should be banned um uh, but the seafood the beaches the scenery it's just a it's just a fantastic place yeah everything about it it's just a great venue there's a reason why people go on their holidays to the Algarve I suppose and uh, certainly you would hope that MotoGP does go back there again in the future Dave we're going to bring the show to a close now, though. But uh, before we do, we've obviously got our winners and losers from the weekend. Who's your big winner from the Portuguese round? Um, I mean, I'm torn. The, the obvious answer should be Miguel Oliveira. But I have to say Tony Arbolina, just because of his fantastic ride through the field. Uh, you know, me writing him off in uh, me writing him off in Moto Three was the uh, was just the just the stimulus he needed, just the motivation he needed to prove me wrong. Um, but yeah, he really he really showed something special this weekend, um, uh, and the fact that he came so close to winning the uh, the Moto Three Championship, I think that that really added some cachet to his uh, to, to his year. Yeah. 
definitely I think as we talked about during the Moto 3 section there like Arbelino was fantastic for me my big winner I'm actually going to pick uh, Sam Lowesworth just because of what he had to go through I think that uh, not even what he went through over the course of the last two weeks from Valencia until now but all the way through this season because if you think back to Hareth pre-season testing he has a bad crash damages his shoulder has to miss the first round of the year comes back for when racing restarted in Hareth he was still struggling pretty badly with the shoulder and then you know builds himself up quietly through the course of the season obviously Austria he has his crash and the opening lap crash so he starts the next race from the back of the grid and then suddenly he has these injuries again at the end of the year like it's not been easy for him at all through the course of the season but he gave himself a real chance of winning the championship and uh, what he was able to do at the end of the of this weekend I think was really impressive to come away with a podium around such a physical track in that kind of condition for me he was he was my big winner yeah I mean it was an unbelievable ride um, just in terms of the mental strength to be able to do that and uh, I mean like you say he's made a massive step forward this way, uh, uh, th- this season just in terms of uh, consistency maturity um, uh, his uh, ability to sort of dig in and, and get results he's you know not crashing as much as he used to um, he is not making the mistakes that he used to uh, so yeah really looking forward to what he can do next year and he I mean he I think he goes into 2021 as the man to beat uh, for in Moto 2 yeah well probably the worst thing for me was whenever I asked him on Thursday you know like uh, how how bad is the injury and he said I'd still beat you at golf mate and then I was thinking <laughs> oh yeah that's a bit cheeky mate and then whenever he goes out and puts it on the podium in a Moto2 race you're then thinking actually yeah he probably still would but uh, Dave apart from me not being able to beat a one-armed man in a golf course um, who was your big loser for the weekend? Um, there, I mean the the list is really really long this weekend but I think I'm going to go with uh, Fabio Quartararo just because um, he seemed like a beaten man all weekend. Um, he couldn't really do anything, and he came. He came in saying, "Oh, I want to be free. You know, there's no pressure. I can just uh, try and uh, try and ride." And he just, you know, couldn't make it work. He couldn't get around the track, and he couldn't get himself together to 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 pose a challenge. And I think it was after the highs of his season start. To finish like this, going into the winter with a positively miserable result, I think is really bad for him. Yeah, I thought whenever he was talking in terms of just trying to enjoy riding the bike and different things like that was what he was talking about in the lead up to the weekend. And he just sounded like Vinales and he was talking in terms of he wanted to work with a sports psychologist and try and figure things out over the course of the winter and that's a good thing a lot of riders do that a lot of riders find a a really big advantage from it but Fabio it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he can find that advantage or whether or not he's just trying to basically find the genie in a bottle because when you look at Fabio's career the unfortunate reality is that as good as last year was it was an outlier compared to all the other years that he's had. And this year was much more similar to the other years in his career. So he's going to face a real big challenge to build himself back up, to give himself the chance again of, of doing what he did last year. Because the talent's obviously there, but 
MotoGP is not about talent. It's about having that talent comes to the fore 20 times a weekend, uh, 20 times a season. And if Fabio can do that, he's going to be great. If he can't, then it's going to be a big challenge for him. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Yamaha, the state of the Yamaha has a role in all of this because when you compare his results to the other uh, to the other Yamaha riders they struggle too or the other Yamaha riders on the 20 uh, on the 2020 bike so it, it's not just down to him um the advantage is he's 21 uh, still very young and a you know a good sports psychologist can make a massive massive difference so it, it's going to be really interesting to see how that um uh, how that works but yeah it, he's not going into the uh, season with the, in the right frame of mind yeah, and uh, I'll tell you what, for my big loser of the weekend, I'm uh, going to choose Aprilia because they've got a MotoGP bike that apparently is improving all the time, that apparently has all the right people being brought in, whether it's uh, management, engineers, all the way down, and they can't find anyone to sit on that bike for next year yet. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them going forward as well. So for me, they're my big loser from this weekend. Um, it was interesting to see how many people actually turned them down because actually the bike was quite good this weekend. Uh, Alicia Spargo uh, qualified well. Um, I mean, he finished uh, eighth, uh, but he was half a second off of six off of uh, off of Dovizioso. You know, obviously, he couldn't beat Dovizioso because he just got out dragged by the sheer horsepower of the. Uh, um, uh, of the Ducati and that happened last weekend as well uh, he wasn't that far off uh, Takaki Nakagami in, in fifth either so the the bike is really not that far but the fact that they can't get a talented rider on the bike obviously you know Dovichoso had no interest in going to to Aprilia uh, Cal Crutchlow had no interest in going to Aprilia um, they have some structural problems which are going to be difficult to solve um, unless they do, you know, get captured lightning in a bottle by persuading a young rider to take a chance on them. And that uh, young rider turns out to be brilliant. Turns out to be another Casey Stoner or Mark Marcus. Yeah, and that's what's going to take. And uh, David, uh, obviously that brings us to an end to the 2020 MotoGP season, but it won't be the end of the Paddockcast podcast in 2020. We'll be back next week with Neil. We'll be back on the show and uh, we'll be looking back on the 2020 season. We're going to have a few shows uh, looking back at what we've seen through the course of the year. We're going to have a few specials as well. Neil's going to be talking Moto2 in a couple of shows time as well with uh, quite a few guests on that show. And uh, Dave, you're going to be able to have a little bit of a holiday now that the season's finished. And uh, that's uh, definitely been well-deserved on the course of what you've been able to go through since MotoGP came back at Hareth. Uh, yeah, I guess I am quite looking forward to uh, sort of like not thinking about motorbikes for a little while. So to rekindle my uh, enthusiasm for them, because it's the 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 schedule was so intense that it really sort of uh, sucked a lot of the joy out of uh, out of racing. Um, uh, it was, yeah. Like I say, it was quite, it was, it, I think it was intense for everybody as well. It was just um, weekend after weekend that, that really sort of took it out of you. Yeah, it's been uh, pretty hectic all the way through. So I'm sure all the listeners will join me in saying a big thank you to yourself, David, and obviously Neil as well for the efforts you've gone through all the way through this season with the shows and uh, being able to keep everything on track. And it's uh, definitely been well received. We've been able to have a lot of support from 
patrons as well, people supporting the podcast for $3 a month, you can uh, become a Patreon supporter. And we've got plenty of Patreon-only content as well that goes out across that. So big thank you to everyone that's been able to support us via patreon.com forward slash podcast. And uh, for everyone else that listens to this show, obviously, as you get here through the course of this show, make sure to get your questions in and uh, we'll make sure that we're able to answer them. So you can send them either to the Paddock Pass pod or else you can send them directly to myself, Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, and we'll make sure to get them answered in the subsequent shows. So a big thank you from myself, Steve English, big thank you from David Emmett, and uh, thanks for joining us as we look back on an exciting weekend from Portimao. Fucking professional, mate.